everyone. Welcome to the Black Dog Institute's eMental Health in Practice podcast for health professionals. I'm Phoebe Holdenson-Kamira, a GP with an interest in mental health. This podcast is a distillation of some of the important information from webinar 50, Smoking Cessation and Mental Health, quit using the word quit. The guests on the webinar were Professor Renee Butone, who is a tobacco treatment specialist and consultant who's been working in the area for 40 years, Melinda Barone, who's a psychologist working in private practice with extensive experience in treating people with smoking dependence, and Dr. Brendan Wong, who's a GP in Sydney with an interest in mental health. In this webinar, the focus was on understanding the behaviour of nicotine addiction, debunk some myths regarding smoking cessation treatment, and how to assess and devise an individual smoking cessation plan. We also talked about the use of e-mental health resources. I recognise that vaping and e-cigarettes are something that are concerning many health professionals at the moment. While the focus of the webinar was on smoking cessation, many of the approaches and strategies are applicable for vaping cessation also. Renee, can you tell us a bit about the picture of smoking in Australia at the moment? Well, what's happened in Australia is really very pleasing for most of us. Around about 11% of the general community smoke. Um, and there are obviously people who we're interested in and, and, and talking about today that, that are still smoking. And we'll come to that in a moment. But what's interesting is um, what has driven the smoking prevalence down has been a, a, a com- combination of events and things that have happened in, in the last couple of decades at least. Um, and so it's been a, what's called a drip effect, the increased cost of tobacco. For those who don't know this, some of your clients or patients will be spending in the order of 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 dollars a packet of cigarettes. People who smoke cheaper cigarettes, just so you know, it's probably illegal uh, because the taxes are substantial. There are fewer places for people to smoke, there's literally nowhere to go to do it, uh, which has really impacted on people giving up. Um, the warnings and social marketing campaigns have been substantial and formidable. There's nowhere for um, you know for you to see what your brand is anymore. So those triggers, those cues of triggers of your own brand are gone now, which is terribly important. Um, they're out of sight. Um, the the fact that um, health professionals like ourselves have been on the case, as it were, for a long time now um, to talk about tobacco, to addressing it. Um, obviously, collaboratively, we've done a huge amount of work to drive the prevalence down. And keep this in mind, we have one of the lowest prevalences of smoking in the world. So we can talk about vaping and its role, but keep that in mind. And we have heavily subsidised um, pharmacotherapies for smokers readily available um, to you and me it's not means tested so keep that in mind too all of that packaged together has driven out our, our um, smoking prevalences down a great deal so tell us we know that we're doing really well but we still have 11 percent of our population smoking who is it that's still smoking in australia by and large it's a, a group of people who are highly dependent by and large all of them nearly all of them are highly dependent. Mm -hmm. We certainly know there is a higher prevalence in our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander groups, um, but that's catching up terrifically well. So there's been targeted campaigns um, which are culturally sensitive and appropriate. So the prevalence is going down in that group. In the mental health group, as you all know, 
drug and alcohol comorbidities, um, people with smoking-related diseases, ironically, fall into that category of mental health um, concerns as well because it, it isn't always self-evident that, that um, people who are unwell from smoking spontaneously quit. They don't. If anything, ironically, they continue to smoke because there's that combined mental health concern, depression, anxiety disorders. Um, and the question is what comes first, that chicken or the egg, mm. or even cardiovascular diseases related to smoking, and they still smoke. People who've had multiple unsuccessful attempts to quit, that's a flag for me that they need extra help, that they're dependent. Don't go down that road route thinking they're not committed to quit they're not motivated don't go there think highly dependent before anything else and they certainly have a group of our smokers have lower socioeconomic status and therefore combining that with more stressors as you know um, this is a group of people whose lives are not simple are complicated they have other uh, they have sequelae from their smoking but smoke anyway yeah. Thank you, Renee. So the reason that we're talking about smoking and mental health today is because people with mental illness, we know, have higher smoking rates. It's about 32%. So it's definitely more than double that of the general population. And what we know as well is that those people with mental health problems, particularly some studies with people who have psychotic illnesses, found that even those smokers sm smoke more cigarettes than on average. Um, they're extracting more nicotine from each cigarette on average, um, and they're more nicotine dependent. And um, I guess there's a number of explanations for why people with mental health conditions are more likely to smoke, um, including self-medication. They might feel as though smoking has a beneficial effect on their cognition and mood and help to alleviate some of their negative symptoms. Um, you know, there's a, a sometimes an element of social inclusion in that smoking can be perceived as a way to fit in uh, within a community. Um, and there's also a shared genetic predisposition to smoking and mental illness. As I've said, you know, smoking can be a way of dealing with negative feelings such as boredom, stress, anxiety, and low mood. And we know that, uh, you know, smokers on the whole are quite motivated to, to quit, but they have less access than the general population to cessation treatment. And we'll talk more about that later. Now, what really surprises me is that smokers who have mental health problems are actually more likely to die from their smoking than as a result of their psychiatric condition. And so the impact on their physical health from things like lung cancer, you know, cardiovascular disease and COPD um, is actually really significant. A common misconception is that smoking cessation can worsen long-term mental health outcomes. Melinda, what's your experience? Smoking cessation can certainly worsen and agitate mood in the short term, and that's why relapse rates are so critical for within week three to you know, month two. Uh, but most certainly does improve mental health outcomes. Uh, but there's still an idea that... Um, within the health industry, much less than in the last five years where people feel that perhaps, um, particularly with mental health patients, if they quit smoking, their stresses become uh, a little bit more difficult to handle. And hence, you know, I'm not surprised that some people feel that it in fact may cause long-term mental health uh, issues. In fact, that is a myth. Uh, 
we are talking a bit more about uh, polycyclic aromatic uh, hydrocarbons later, but the myth is is that, um, in fact, if you continue smoking, it's, that's going to most certainly contribute to worse mental health outcomes. But what the research shows us is that, yes, the first few weeks are going to be particularly unpleasant in terms of withdrawal symptoms, but quitting smoking for at least six weeks actually improves mental health, mood and quality of life. We also know that smoking is associated with suicidal ideation, plan, attempt and death, um, and that this association is reduced when a person quits, which is quite remarkable, I think. So it's been thought for a long time, as Melinda said, that, you know, that smoking helps people to cope with things in life, with stress, but it's thought now that the benefic- you know, that, that it's actually largely to do with the temporary alleviation of nicotine withdrawal symptoms um, that create the false impression that smoking is relaxing. Renee, who is it that's going to find it hardest to quit? You talked earlier about those who have high levels of nicotine dependence. What does that actually look like? So people who smoke within the first half hour of waking, and I might add we're now adding that to vaping, Time to first cigarette. You possibly have heard that before. Time to first vaping. If you do that within the first half hour of waking up, it really means that you've excreted most of the nicotine as cotinine and it's in your urine. They've tried many times to abstain and they have overwhelming symptoms of withdrawal. And as you mentioned, Phoebe, before, what smokers don't realise is nicotine is a very short-acting drug and that they go through what you call the stress paradox, that, that it relieves their stress immediately and then, of course, it wears off so quickly. Keep in mind, everybody, that nicotine is a very short-acting drug, about 40 minutes to 120 minutes. It doesn't hang around long. Um What's unfortunate with some of our smokers, they've been offered NRTs, nicotine replacement therapies, usually very low doses, inappropriately low doses, and so they smoke while they're using them and they think that they're a failure. Um, And unfortunately, it's usually the fact that the dose is too low and certainly not replacing the amount of nicotine, but they don't know that, so they've tried before. It doesn't work for me is how people put it. I put a patch on and I smoked anyway. That's really, for me, a flag that their nicotine blood levels are too high and it's hard for them. Um, And as I mentioned before, they might be fast metabolizers of nicotine. How do we know somebody's a fast metabolizer? They wake up in the morning and need to do it straight away. This is a, unfortunately, nicotine is metabolized. It's an inherited trait. Some people are faster than others. And that's not a choice. That's not a decision they make. It's nothing to do with motivation. It's a liver function. So have a look at that. We do know that many people would very much like to to stop or at least manage their smoking better, which is the words I like to use. Um, But find it, some people find it harder than others. Mm. It's not a one size fits all. That's right. So we need to take a bit of a tailored approach in our conversations and our management plans with patients when it comes to nicotine addiction. Renee, can you tell us what are the different levels? You've talked to us about that high level. Yes. Yeah. There are mild, what what, you might want to call the the social smoker who doesn't do it every day, who might just do it on a Friday night with a drink which stimulates nicotine acetylcholine receptors. Alcohol does that. So therefore you're sort of more stimulated to smoke, but the rest of the week 
um, you're not. That's pretty unusual. And that includes vaping the same. We've got moderate users who do it every day but aren't really driven to do this got to wake up and do it straight away thing. Um, they might need medications or not, maybe need some extra tips and advice. And then there are in the category mostly of our mental health patients, drug and alcohol patients, um, who do do it daily, who do it within minutes of waking up. They do it in the face of the medical consequences. They've tried it a lot. And this runs in families, which is really um, important to remember. We ask about familial traits with regard to this. What is impressive and important for us to all remember is that this is not a decision that a pa patient is making, that they're... Um, they're uh, that they're unmotivated. We see our smokers so motivated but unable to achieve it because simply we haven't been able to, at least uh, a lot of our colleagues haven't been able to understand that the transition from smoking to not smoking, which is what we specialise in helping, Mel and I specialise in helping people do, should be as smooth as possible so that they don't get withdrawals, so they don't get through those first few weeks of it being so traumatic that they give up giving up. We don't want that. And to achieve this, we need to understand that it, remembering it's a not a one size fits all. Those who are more dependent have higher blood levels of nicotine. So we know that about mental health smokers. Their blood levels, their baseline nicotine, irrespective of how much they smoke, don't go thinking the more they smoke, the, the worse it is. Think how they smoke. They drag harder on cigarettes. They're more dependent on it. They have higher blood levels, even from smoking the same amount as somebody else. Mm. So keep that in mind. They're going to need more intensive and more treatment and certainly more pharmacotherapy. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm seeing some conversation in the chat box, which is excellent around that, is that I think we're often just fixated on the number of cigarettes and we don't really dig into, well, what are the actual behaviours? You know, when, when are you picking up that first cigarette? How do the cravings feel? And again, that just really goes back to the importance of having that tailored approach to working out how dependent yeah. that person is. Now, um, Renee, can you tell us um, what, what are the impacts of nicotine um, on the brain and on the body? I wanted to, well, certainly on the on the brain, I wanted to remind people that um, people have withdrawals between cigarettes, which is what I was saying. The half-life of this drug is so short that people don't even realise that there are 25 in a packet because um, literally it decays so quickly you're going to need 25 during your waking day. It's as simple as that and it's worth informing your smokers of that because they think, what, I've been had all along, I didn't realise that it's packaged in order to... Um, for my usage, for my cravings, for my urges to smoke, uh, people become anxious, distressed, um, they become tense, uh, it uh, they, they get um, an increase in appetite and that is a complex reason why people want to put, it's not putting something in your mouth, it's because smokers become a little hypoglycemic. Hypo, they raise their blood sugar by smoking a cigarette, believe it or not. Um, they can't concentrate, and we have the same symptoms now between vaping in vapours, waking up, doing it straight away, becoming anxious when they can't. Can't concentrate is typical of a vapour, just as it is of a smoker. Uh, they become depressed in the longer term. So depression, what comes first, the chicken or egg, is a very valuable thing to look through and consider. People who smoke 
develop mouse ulcers when they quit, about one in three. So look that up. Aptus stomatitis is not uncommon. People are constipated when they don't smoke and they don't always volunteer it. They don't say, yeah, yeah, this is something that happens to me, but it can be significant enough for people to go back to smoking. All these symptoms can be. So how do you tease that out? Do you preempt it by telling them this is going to happen or do you wait for them to volunteer it? And here's another one that's very interesting. It comes up a lot. I always um, smoked and never coughed. And now that I've quit smoking, I've got a cough. How is that possible? I've been doing this for 20 years and I never coughed. Mm. Well, cough is an interesting um, impact of nicotine locally on the lining of the lung. Cough is a, nicotine is a cough suppressant. Look that up. And look that up with regard to vaping as well. So why do, are we concerned about smoking with COVID? You don't expectorate as much. You don't clear your lungs as much. If you're a smoker, the, the classic smoker's cough comes on much later in the, the career of a smoker. It rarely comes up in the young smoker. Think about it. Nobody puffs on a cigarette and goes. <coughs> and so our job is to really prevent these things from happening so that people feel calmly going from one behaviour called smoking to not smoking as nice as we can make it and keep it that way. Yeah. Brendan, what is it in general practice that, you know, that you, you tend to see um, as, the, as common withdrawal symptoms that your patients report? Oh, I definitely think um, the anxiety and mm. sort of the immediate um, cravings are probably the thing that, that you see most. And, you know, I think patients are really worried that it will in the short term impact on their mental health and mm. that they would start to feel a lot worse. And also, I think there's a lot of fear about smoking cessation so they just are motivated but they they um i think it's just the anxiety about it is just just too overwhelming yeah and perhaps mm. they've had a negative experience in the past mm. now renee you were telling us a little bit about the importance of the liver in smoking earlier can you can you tell us a bit more now Yes, there are genetic variations. And I think what some people know about the liver function um, to do with smoking, in particular to do with what I've got here is the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons that are produced when you smoke anything, remember that, folks, anything organic, that includes cannabis, that you have this stimulating effect that, um, that induces, induction is the term, of these liver enzymes 1A2, 2D6, um, and these are PAHs um, that um, affect, some of you might know, um, medications like our antipsychotics. You probably all know well enough, I suspect, about clozapine, olanzapine. But what people don't always um, realise that, that how fast you metabolise nicotine, the enzyme 1A, 1A6, 1A2, um, 1A6 is the pathway um, to, through um, uh, excreting nicotine, and 106 is an enzyme that you're, again, all of these enzymes which you, you are born with. Um, so if you're a fast excreter of nicotine, and keep that in mind, that you might need to inhale deeper. Um, you smoke certainly within the first half hour of waking up, and you're certainly need to, needing to get more NRT. So one form of it is not going to do it. And we see it a lot, a lot more in our 11% of smokers who are now left behind, as it were, not being uh, properly medicated with pharmacotherapies for smoking cessation. I want to remind everybody this is not a nicotine effect. This is a PAH effect. 
Um, and that we see a little bit now. We're seeing uh, to a lesser degree in vaping. Vaping, yeah. But keep that in mind. It's terribly important to remember, uh, particularly if I can mention caffeine, and I'm always on the case of how much coffee you drink because it has a big impact on smoking and quitting and the side effects of of quitting caffeine in particular, as does alcohol. Same idea. It's stronger when you don't smoke. They're all stronger. And the implications are really interesting. That's right. And we've got somebody in the in, in the uh, one of our participants saying the same thing, that it tends to be those who smoke and, and drink coffee together that seem to be the hardest to quit. Yes. And that exactly fits with what we're talking about. Yes. And it, particularly when we're talking about people with mental health problems, it's really important to be aware of this effect because when they quit smoking... Then, the, then their antipsychotic may have um, a greater effect. Um, and so we need to be monitoring that very, very carefully um, and opioids as well. Let's move on to our case scenario. Tony is a 35-year-old man with schizophrenia who is currently unemployed and lives with his mother. He presents for a renewal of his antipsychotic medication, clozapine. He smokes about 50 cigarettes a day, mostly rolling his own or buying cheap illegal cigarettes. He drinks heaps of coffee, around 10 cups a day, and has his first cigarette within five minutes of waking with that cup of coffee. He's been smoking since he was a teenager, and he says it helps to calm him down and reduce the voices in his head. He tells you that he's really not that interested in quitting. Brendan, what sticks out to you if you were seeing Tony? Um. I think this is just a very challenging patient in general. I think what sticks out to me is that um, especially my patients with schizophrenia have very fixed and entrenched beliefs. And so trying to untangle um, uh, Tony's um, interest in quitting is going to be very, very challenging and very difficult. So, um, and I think, you know, I understand that if we got him to stop or quit smoking, that would be the best thing for his health. But there are just so many other um uh, uh, it, things that you just ha- want to try and um, uh, do whilst he's seeing you and his agenda might be different to yours. Mm, that's very tricky, isn't it? But as, mm. as you said, very common, Brendan. Melinda, what's, what sticks out to you um, as a psychologist when you, when you think? Uh, not training? much. This is a fairly typical picture yeah. <laughs> for, for our patients. Yeah. Uh, not uncommon at all for a person uh, with schizophrenia um, to be smoking 50, 50 cigarettes a day uh, for that period of time, some of which can be 20, 30 years. Um, I think what's important is that um, it's it's not really necessarily uh, always about the presentation, but rather it's about just looking at these individuals and saying, okay, look, they're not going to necessarily stop, so therefore I wouldn't be speaking to any of them uh, about, uh, well, let's, you know, let's, yeah, let's look at it, you know, two weeks' time and let's look at a calendar and let's set a, uh, a quitting schedule, which is why we've got the let's not talk about quitting. This is a, in any instance, I think Renee may have mentioned this earlier, if, if anyone could have quit, they already have. This is the advantage we have in Australia. So those who haven't quit, we're looking at a huge amount of mental health issues and this is a very classic picture. So it's about a combination approach. It's saying, okay, Tony, you know what, we're just going to give you a patch and we're going to send you home and you can keep smoking and I want to kind of see you again and we're going to keep adding you know, uh, combination NRT, um, so, uh, pharmaceuticals and anything else. And over time, 
you know, that's going to actually change Tony's smoking topography and that's what we want to look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a long game. It's yep. a long game. This isn't something that's going to happen quickly, but that also helps Tony on, a, I guess, a psychosocial level to, to say, oh, okay, so I, I can smoke with a patch. Well, that's, I didn't know that. I didn't know I could just keep smoking. And interestingly, over time, as they start to sort of reduce uh, the way they smoke, uh, the, the, the time the first cigarette starts to sort of lengthen, they then become kind of motivators. And that's the thing that can keep spurring that individual to eventually. Uh, there's no reason, in fact, and, and Renee will be able to talk to this, there's no reason why we can't get Tony to quit smoking. Yep. But we Thank just you. have to be systematic about the application. That's right. And as you said, Melinda, just having that long game view. Um, all right. So, Renee, tell us what are our pro- how would we go about just assessing? You know, we ask, assess, you know, how, yes. how do we understand what's going on for Tony? Well, one of the things is to inform Tony a bit better about what he's doing. Um, literally, <clears throat> as Melinda um, mentioned, uh, I would now, and, and I write papers about this, is to quit using the word quit because that just intimidates him and he, if he could have, he would have, yeah. frankly, even though he's not interested in it. Most of our smokers, as we've mentioned right in the beginning, are interested in doing it, but their history of trying to manage this better has been pretty abysmal. And the, then people give up giving up um, mm. and, and, and our help isn't help, helping either, frankly. Um, do we ask them about what they're smoking? We do, remembering that this chop chop behind me is incredibly um, uh, bad for your health. Um, rolling your own is bad for your health. There's a myth that somehow it's less, it's greener, you know, that it's less um, uh, impacted by the tobacco industry. None of that's true. Um, Rolling your own increases the carbon monoxide levels that you have. In fact, not only is it not better for you, it's worse for you. So we always ask, what are you smoking? We ask them about their previous attempts. Have you ever tried this? What was it like? You know, tell me, how did you go with this? I wouldn't use the word failures, but I want to know, did you try these nicotine replacement therapies and what happened? Because all of these things are flags for us to help them. Um, We ask about family history, talk about heritability. What does that actually mean, the heritability of this? Not only did um, mum and dad smoke, but your children are likely to be smokers. Um, 50-50 chance, but also that you have a sensitivity, if we can use that word, um, to nicotine. Some people become very dependent, other people a lot less. If you're sensitive to it, it means that you will always will be. That um, is something that people need to, if you can discuss this, uh, factor in and think about. Um, talk about their environmental context because these things matter. Where do you smoke? Are you smoking at home? Are you smoking with other people inside or outside? What is the environmental stimuli? What are the cues that are around you? I need to know that. How you word this matters. I'm here to not just get some data about you, but I'm here to help you. And this helps me help you if I know what's going on around you. Um, I want to remind you that people who metabolise nicotine faster, and there are whole genetic groups of people who do this. So what is his origin? What is his genetic origin? People from the Middle East, from the whole of the uh, Mediterranean rim, are faster metabolisers than people who are from, say, Asia, from Southeast Asia. Does this matter? Yes, it is. You've got to factor this in. Um, Talk about their medical history. Why? 
these things matter um, because we know blood levels of nicotine in mental health, for example, we know your requirements, your need for nicotine is greater. So your nicotine replacement therapies that you've tried in the past uh, haven't been helpful. And we know now why. In pregnancy, for those who don't know that, nicotine blood levels are also higher. They're going to need in pregnancy more NRT, not less, not less medications, more. And it's an irony, it's a myth we want to debunk. Um, and these are really helpful. There's good articles and publications on this. These caffeine levels we talked about earlier, remember it's caffeinated drinks of all sorts. So they're prodigious Coca-Cola drinkers, Pepsi-Cola, Coca-Cola, Red Bull. Think of all those caffeinated drinks. All of these things have an impact on cessation. When you try to stop smoking or lower, the, even lower the amount, these caffeinated levels are going to go up. So no wonder you can't sleep at night when you're on NRT. They say the patch is keeping me awake at night and you need to ask how much coffee do you drink? Oh, the same as before? Well, if it's the same as before, you need to reduce it. We don't want people to stop it. We just need to know what they're doing, how much they're using, and describe the impacts of these things. It's suddenly got a whole heap stronger, just like your antipsychotics get a whole heap stronger. And so do keep that in mind. Always ask about caffeinated drinks. Um, and that will help us devise a plan, if it, as it were, for your independent, um, for your individual. So individualizing this for your for your client, we know is far more successful than a one size fits all. Fascinating, and it helps them to understand what's going on in those first few weeks. Correct. Uh, now, Renee, tell us, um, you're really passionate that pharmacotherapy plays an important role in smoking cessation. Is that right? I'm very keen on it because simply um, it, it, it is a game changer. If you mm. do this properly, give them the right amount, don't underdose with this fearful underdosing, um, uh, give them lots of it and they'll do well. You can at least, at least double, more than double your chances of helping somebody. That's right. It's quite amazing. Now, tell us, what are those important issues in managing smokers? These are those myths that we're trying to debunk yes. today. Well, one of the big myths is about cutting down, um, that if you smoke less, that's helpful. We mentioned earlier that the terminology, the topography, how you smoke matters. So, for example, if you're, um, and I'll grab a plastic cigarette right here. It's plastic, in case you think it's a real one. It's not. Um, how I smoke, it matters a lot. So if I drag hard and hold my breath, I can get double the dose from that. And that's what pe people do when they cut down. They're very pleased about it. I'm smoking less. I used to smoke 20 and now I'm doing five a day, but I'm doing that like that, dragging hard. And unfortunately, that can be worse for you because there's more particulate matter, more gases into the periphery of your lungs. So we've seen more peripheral carcinomas because of this because people do the same when they're smoking weaker or milder cigarettes, we wouldn't recommend this. So this is a difficult thing because people think they're doing themselves less harm. And we're of course all interested in harm reduction. We want to see less harm, but this may not be the manner in which you can do it. The trials have been done for hypnotherapy, acupuncture, laser acupuncture, creams and lotions and potions. There's a lot out there with unsubstantiated claims for efficacy and there's no evidence to support it. So we can't recommend it. What we can recommend is good evidence and there's good evidence for combination of nicotine replacement therapies 
Um, we There's good evidence for varenicline or um, Champix, as you know it, um, being very efficacious and combining them yeah. and using them longer. So there's good evidence for a lot of these pharmacotherapies um, and, and some. So I'm suggesting, you know, if, if you're concerned about it, look it up, have a look at the evidence. The evidence for the side effects from varenicline, which has always had a lot of press, is really unsubstantiated because uh, people are concerned about depression and anxiety, and perhaps we'll talk about that later, but the reality is that that's not valid at all. These are symptoms of withdrawal. Treat withdrawal symptoms. That's right. And how about e-cigarettes, Renee? Would you or you well, know, e-cigarettes? This is or vaping. This is now such a controversial issue, and we're well into the throes of this now as to whether there is evidence that people um, quit smoking, that it's harm reduction. Um, that's a very divisive consumer issue. What can I say um, about consumerism? Uh, this is, for my, in my point of view, this is the tobacco industry, of course, looking for the next generation of long-term consumers because it's very dependence-producing. There is a myth out there that nicotine is benign, and nicotine is not benign in it of itself. Um, it has impacts on the brain, as we've seen. We've seen in mental health. Uh, and it's important for people to remember what comes first in your patient's mental health. Is it their smoking or their mental health? Renee shared with us some tips for using nicotine replacement therapy, including avoiding underdosing, that some will need to be using more than one patch on the skin at any given time, the use of combination nicotine replacement therapy that is safe and it produces better outcomes. So, for example, you might be using a patch and gum at the same time. Night patching, which is applying the patch lasting at night before going to bed, which reduces the urge to smoke on waking. To not stop too early, she recommends continued use of nicotine replacement therapy for many months while the patient's behaviour changes. Harm reduction, that you can actually continue to smoke while using nicotine replacement therapy and that that is safe. Some people believe that you can overdose on nicotine. However, if the dose is too high, you'll know because they'll experience some nausea and the dose can just be titrated down. And that you can't get addicted to nicotine replacement therapy because of the way that it is released. Renee, what are your quick little tips for talking to smokers? For example, um, you know, you, you, uh, you want to smoke fine and this is not, you know, I don't want to quit like this chap. He doesn't want to quit. So I just went along and said, look, what we've learned, this is a way to get around this, what we've learned today is that you can wear a patch and smoke and it's safe and then you'll do less harm. We don't nag because we know nagging is counterproductive, even though we know doctors are supposed to say about smoking um, every time, but we certainly na nagging can actually get pretty tedious. Let's talk a little bit about monitoring because we know that those first two weeks are the most critical in terms of, um, you know, relapse risk because of the severity of um, people's withdrawal symptoms. For someone who comes to see me, there's, there's weekly for the first three months for the simple reason that that's a critical period. And you know, I want to make sure that what's been applied with some pharmacotherapy combined NRT is, is working and we're seeing a change in the right direction. And normally it requires the long game, as I mentioned earlier, and a great deal of check-in and support. And that's 
uh, without those resources, this is where we can become unstuck. And this is why I think a lot of patients do become unstuck because it's difficult to have that level of labour-intensive uh, resources available to people. But it's, um, it's incredibly important uh, for this kind of um, patient. That's right. Now, Renee's got some really quite amazing tips uh, for, um, for managing those withdrawal symptoms, the cravings. Um, can you quickly talk through those, Renee? I will. They're called the first aid for smokers and vapors who can't go out or can't do it or whatever. Um, obviously, we're encouraging pharmacotherapies, and I can't stress that enough. And I, uh, and I do want to remind people where you smoke matters, where, so we always ask where you're doing this, as I said right in the beginning. So smoking outside is ideal. Smoking outside, literally, you want to smoke fine, wear a patch and smoke outside. Boom, like that. Yep. Off you go, right? And if you say that, it, it does change things. Um, which the, the where you smoke has an impact on how uh, strong your urges are to smoke. So if you smoked always in front of your TV or in your home, can you go outside? You want to smoke? Fine, go outside to do that. It's a gateway to quitting. We know that. There's exercises people can do. This is all evidence-based. These little things that sound, you mentioned earlier, Phoebe, about something sweet, jelly beans help. Activities like diversional activities help. And remind yourselves of the caffeine. And do we do something about alcohol? Obviously, it's a stimulant. Do we eliminate it altogether? It's it's complicated. Possibly, ideally, for the first two weeks, we would do that for the first two weeks. And for the longer term, I think um, we, we know to, to talk about strategies, how to learn how to be without a cigarette, how to learn how to behave. One of the things that was really impressive with, with my patient, Tony, was that he became so encouraged by his ability to control mm. his smoking. It gave him such energy and he was so... Um, uh, his self-efficacy improved hugely. Particularly for, for general practitioners or other allied health practitioners that might be a bit more time poor or feel that they don't have the skills necessarily. Uh, as you're probably all familiar with Fitline, um, that's telephone coaching for those wanting to quit smoking and features a callback service where you can actually book a time for quit to call you and that's up to six callbacks offered. There's also Quit Coach, which is an online program that delivers personalised feedback and smoking cessation advice based on principles of cognitive behavior therapy um, we also have a culturally sensitive um, appropriate um, quit line service called aboriginal quit line and i believe that that's quite a small team so you're always sort of able to um, connect with the same coach which is really lovely and um, there's some information on the quit line website about vaping and teenagers which i think is a concern for many of us uh, in the community um, that's, I, I believe that that's actually the main reason that these new changes to prescribing have actually come in. That's been the driver for it. There are also some apps um, that, that help people to quit smoking. My Quit Buddy is a federally funded um, uh, app, developed app, which I've used quite successfully with many of my patients. Um, and that's, it's sort of nice because it calculates how many days you've not, you've not been smoking, how many you know, how many dollars you've saved uh, and also, you know, parts of your body that are starting to revert back to their pre-smoking um, pre selves. Uh, and I think that many patients um, get quite a bit of a kick from that. My Quit Buddy um, is offline currently being revamped. Uh, and so I've found some other uh, apps that might be of help. We've got Smoke Free, 
uh, quit smoking. And there's a new one out that looks fantastic called Quit Vaping. And they're very similar um, resources to My Quit Buddy uh, and provide CBT-based advice um, and support. Um, so you might want to direct your patients to one of those resources. I hope you've enjoyed learning about smoking cessation and mental health. A resource document containing all the resources and services that we've discussed are available via the Black Dog Institute website under the eMental Health in Practice page. Thanks so much for listening today. Until next time, bye.